Hey, Ideas and Action listeners, it's Nicole Counts, Senior Editor at One World, with a special bonus episode for you. If you heard our episode on storytelling and healing, featuring Chiara Alegria Hudes and Carla Cornejo via Vicencio, you'll know we talked about how storytelling as healing and how sharing our pain, our hurt, our narratives can provide release and restore our sense of wonder. For this bonus episode, we've picked a selection from the audiobook of See No Stranger, Valerie Kaur's memoir about why revolutionary love, a practice that enjoins us to look at others and say, you are a part of me, I do not know yet, is the call of our time. In this clip, Valerie discusses the importance of recognizing the humanity of our opponents, personal, professional, and ideological, and why listening to people we do not agree with enables us to fight in smarter ways for justice. We hope hearing Valerie discuss wonder, listening, and the power of love will move you to ideas and actions of your own. There comes a point in the aftermath of cruelty or injury when I start to wonder about my opponent. Why did they do that? Say that? Believe that? Vote that way? What is at stake for them? What is driving their behavior? And I want to find out. Sometimes it's not safe for me to do this. I need to tend my own wound and keep processing my rage, grief, and trauma. But when it is safe, I think about how to listen to their story. One might say, why should anyone try to listen to the white nationalists marching in the street? or the demagogue locking children in cages, or a former abuser. For too long, marginalized people have been asked to feel for their oppressors at the expense of their own dignity. Enough. We have a right to withhold our empathy. No one should be asked to feel empathy or compassion for their oppressors. I have learned that we do not need to feel anything for our opponents at all in order to practice love. Love is labor that returns us to wonder. It is seeing another person's humanity, even if they deny our own. We just have to choose to wonder about them. Why is it that such labor always falls on the ones who have been the most oppressed, They have already ground our bones and profited from our sweat and tears and suffering. How much more is expected of us? We don't owe our oppressors anything. I do not owe my opponents my affection, warmth, or regard. But I do owe myself a chance to live in this world without the burden of hate. I shall permit no man no matter what his color might be, to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him, said Booker T. Washington. It reminds me of a line from Toni Morrison's novel, Love. Hate does that, burns off everything but itself, so whatever your grievance is, your face looks just like your enemies. I refuse to let anyone belittle my soul or diminish my own expansive sense of self. The more I listen, the less I hate. The less I hate, 
the more I am free to choose actions that are controlled not by animosity, but by wisdom. Laboring to love my opponents is how I love myself. This is not the stuff of saintliness. This is our birthright. Listening is also a strategic choice. The more I listen, the more I understand. I am persuaded that there is no such thing as monsters in this world, only human beings who are wounded. I start to gain critical information about how we can respond to their greed, insecurity, anxiety, or blindness in ways that hold them accountable and fight the institutions that empower them. Listening enables us to fight in smarter ways for justice, not only to remove bad actors from power, but to change the cultures that radicalize them. Listening is how we succeed. The question, therefore, is not whether or not to listen to our opponents. The questions are, when is it my role to listen? When am I emotionally and physically safe? When can I take on the labor of listening when others are not safe to do so? We can all be one another's accomplices. At any given time, there are some opponents I cannot wonder about. I need others to do that labor for me as I tend to the wounds they inflict. But there are some opponents I find I am in a position to listen to. In these moments, it is time to turn to the practice of how. It begins with the art of listening to stories. By the fall of 2006, the war in Iraq was at a fever pitch, and the list of hate crime victims was growing. Sherith and I were still working to turn the footage I had collected after 9-11 into a film about hate crimes called Divided We Fall. We didn't get the grants we applied for. We couldn't find wealthy donors willing to take a chance on us. We had no money. But every time I buried my head in my hands, Sharath repeated a truth another independent filmmaker had passed on to him. If you run after your project, people will chase you. So we ran after our project despite everything. Our friends began to volunteer as researchers, editors, and production assistants, working for free because they believed in the project and they believed in us. Sharath and I did not want to let them down. So we broke the first rule of filmmaking and maxed out our personal credit cards. We crisscrossed the country again, this time with our film team, shooting on 16mm film. Blogs had just become a thing. I began blogging stories about our interviews with scholars, advocates, and more survivors of hate, and little donations started to trickle in. First $10, then $20, then $50— We raised enough money for post-production, tapping into crowdsourcing before it became a term. The central focus of the film emerged. Who counts as American? The Sikhs and Muslims in our film made a declaration. We see ourselves as American and challenged our audience. How do you see us? We premiered the film on September 15, 2006, five years after Balbir Singh Sodhi's murder. 
Rana Sodi invited us to premiere the film in Phoenix on Balbir Uncle's death anniversary. We showed up, nervous, then amazed. 400 people came. The Sodi family had worked with local Sikh and interfaith leaders to turn a carpenter's union building into a movie theater. They rolled out a red carpet in a parking lot and kicked off the night with Punjabi food, hot ja, and kirtan, the poetry of Sikh scriptures set to song. Five years after 9-11, our community was still in crisis response mode, but now we were no longer relying solely on others to tell our stories. We were telling our own stories and creating our own alternative spaces in which to share them. With the family's blessings, we made the rounds of film festivals and won a few awards. Educators who had been following our blog began to invite us to screen the film on campuses, hungry for ways to talk about the escalation of hate in America since 9-11. Suddenly, we were catapulted into a film tour to colleges and universities across the country. Sharath and I went from city to city, screening the film in classrooms and auditoriums, sometimes to audiences of a few dozen, other times a thousand. Our film was often required viewing for students, so the young people we engaged were diverse in political beliefs and backgrounds, a cross-section of our generation. We were on the road for two years and reached about 300 campuses and communities. Each night the film played, I stood in the back of the theater and watched the audience. Their sighs, laughter, gasps, tears, and silence. Their listening was an embodied experience. They were giving their senses to the screen. That was the singular power of cinema, the great empathy machine, to transfer our stories into their bodies in one seamless dream. The lights lifted. It was done. Our stories belong to them now. Sharath and I took the stage as students and community members lined up at the mics, one after another, people confessed how they had seen six as foreigners or suspects or terrorists until they heard our stories. Whenever I saw turban men at the airport or on the street, I was afraid. I didn't realize that until now. I had no idea that these hate crimes happened. I didn't know anything about six. I'm so sorry. The film was forcing people to confront the conscious and unconscious ways that they were seeing other faces, our faces. Each night turned into a sort of town hall experience, intimate, raw, emotional, and demanding. In Connecticut, a Japanese-American woman said, My grandparents were interned in the camps during World War II. No one raised their voice for them then. I will raise my voice for you now. In New York City, a gay man stood up and said, I realize now that I must fight for the rights of Sikhs to wear their turbans, just as I fight for the rights of queer people to come out of the closet. We have to fight for one another. In Chicago, a black man pointed to his dreadlocks and said, My braids are my turban. In story after story, people of color, queer people, and white allies 
were making connections that I had not made, linking their struggles to mine. They admitted that they had seen six as strangers or outright opponents. Now they were vowing to stand with us, to fight with us. We had made the film so that others would listen to our stories. What I did not expect was for the film to open spaces for me to listen to their stories. At the end of each night, people lined up to talk to me, often crying in my arms as I tried to find the right way to say, I see you. I began to understand that the pain that I had felt to be uniquely my own belonged to many. The sick story was bound up with the stories of all people still striving to be seen in America, our struggle situated in the larger struggle for civil and human rights. A larger we came into view. I could no longer be the activist who labored only for her own people. I had to listen to other community stories with the same wonder and humility with which they were listening to mine. I had to grieve with them. I had to fight for them, as they were doing for us. Deep listening is an act of surrender. We risk being changed by what we hear. When I really want to hear another person's story, I try to leave my preconceptions at the door and draw close to their telling. I am always partially listening to the thoughts in my own head when others are speaking, so I consciously quiet my thoughts and begin to listen with my senses. Empathy is cognitive and emotional. To inhabit another person's view of the world is to feel the world with them. But I also know that it's okay if I don't feel very much for them at all. I just need to feel safe enough to stay curious. The most critical part of listening is asking what is at stake for the other person. I try to understand what matters to them, not what I think matters. Sometimes I start to lose myself in their story. As soon as I notice feeling unmoored, I try to pull myself back into my body, like returning home. As Hannah Arendt says, one trains one's imagination to go visiting. When the story is done, we must return to our skin, our own worldview, and notice how we have been changed by our visit. So I ask myself, what is this story demanding of me? What will I do now that I know this? When I listen that deeply, it feels like a dance between two poles, between myself and another person, between what is at stake for them and what is at stake for me. I call this the circle of listening. The dance can take place in any length of time, 90 seconds or 90 minutes. I can be listening to a friend on the phone, or a survivor's testimony, or an opponent's story. The process is the same. I draw close to them, return, respond, and draw close to listen again, moving in a circle animated by wonder. Sometimes I feel empathy, that is, I feel as they are feeling. Other times, say when a child in my care is wailing, I don't need to feel empathy in order to know how to respond. 
In fact, sometimes empathy gets in the way. For decades, documentary filmmakers have told stories about immigrants and refugees and survivors of violence. Empathy was the goal. The idea was that if we just humanized people, it would motivate audiences to action. But witnessing suffering does not necessarily lead to meaningful action. The credits roll, we go home or swipe the screen. We think that something has been accomplished because we are emotionally spent. But nothing has changed. We can have all the empathy in the world for a group of people and still participate in the structures and systems that oppress them. We might believe we are listening, but we have journeyed only half the circle. We have drawn close to the story and lost ourselves in another's experience, but we haven't returned to ourselves and asked, what does this demand of me? Is it the reckoning of my privilege? Is it an expansion of whose struggles connect with mine? What will I do differently now? Our documentary film could have fallen into the empathy-as-destination trap. But when the lights went on, Sharath and I stood on the stage in the flesh, and our presence demanded a response. Often, Sikhs and Muslims who lived in the community stood up in the audience and told their stories too, voices cracking. Listening led to action. Students formed working groups. Others penned essays for the school newspaper. Some formed new friendships. Empathy gave rise to solidarity. As we toured with the film, campuses began to ask us to stay longer so that I could give lectures and workshops on storytelling and social change. Every week I taught in a different part of the country, honing my skills. I thought I was becoming an expert in the art of listening across divides. Until I had to try it at home. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Ideas in Action, brought to you by One World. Audio excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from See No Stranger by Valerie Kaur and read by the author. For more information, visit oneworldlit.com or penguinrandomhouse.com. I'm Nicole Counts, and we'll be back next week with more ideas in action.